invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 3. We're going to be walking through Genesis for portions of uh, this summer here. Now, all of creation, this is by way of review, all of creation is a house that God built, created for his name to dwell in. It's the cosmic temple. Now, given dominion over all creation, Adam is to rule as king and Eve to rule as queen. And they serve together in God's garden sanctuary, Adam as priest and Eve his glory and helper. That's a bit of the framework for Genesis 1 and 2. Now we get to Genesis 3. And by the end of Genesis 3, we have this passage. It says that he, God, drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And from that point, none returned to the garden, to Eden, nor did any take from that fruit in the midst of the garden until one day the offspring of Eve would make a way. That is this story, and that is our story. As we enter into Genesis 3, would you please join me with a word of prayer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you give us yourself through your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the living Word. And as we open up your scriptures this morning, would you draw near in your grace, your mercy, and your love. Open our eyes and our ears to see and hear and to receive that which you have for us, that our lives might be conformed into the image of your dear Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, this, we journey east of Eden. That's our story. Everyone's story. We journey east of Eden. As the end of our chapter says, God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed cherubim and a flaming sword. From the end of chapter 2, it only takes eight short verses before man, humanity goes from being naked and without shame to being naked with eyes wide open, hide from God, ashamed. And henceforth, we, like our first parents, walk our entire lives a journey east of Eden. And we are clothed in the loincloths of these verses before us this morning. Adam and Eve walked hand in hand in the garden with each other as they walked with God. And yet we see in chapter 3, evil enters in, verse 1 and following. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. What led to our journey east of Eden? Well, here it's pretty clear. There's deception and there's disobedience. And a lot of ink has been spilled asking and answering to answer questions about how evil enters in. What's the nature of this serpent? How is this creature coming to tempt? What kind of fruit is being grasped after here? We're not going to linger on those questions. We're just simply going to begin by examining the craftiness of this serpent, this deceiver. That's how he's called, crafty, crafty one. Well, first we say, we hear from his uh, his, his tongue, he says, did God actually say? Did God actually say? Right? This is a temptation, a deception that's seeking to work a wedge 
in two directions, inviting the woman to doubt God in his word and to question her husband as well, her God-given nurturer and protector. See, God spoke the word to Adam, and as priest, he gives that word to Eve. He is the nurturer and the guard of the garden. Eve then speaks these words back to the serpent. God said is how her reply goes. But you see the wedge that the serpent is trying to divide here. Husband and wife, human from God. And then he asked, do you not to eat from any of the trees? Well, we know that's not true. And Eve even says as much. But Eve is being invited to question, to wonder why this prohibition? Why all but this tree? Why would a good God withhold such good fruit? And the serpent invites doubt, and he fosters distrust. He maybe even incites anger here. Is God indeed good? Is the subtext of his temptation here? Is God indeed good? Seeps through his forked-tongued words. And how did Jesus himself fight temptation? What did he do? Speaks God's word back to the deceiver. And so Eve speaks God's word in order to fight back. Although there is the additional, we shall not touch it lest we die. Verse 4 and following, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So... When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave also some to her husband who was with her and he ate. The first temptation tends to disharmonize the hearing. It, it tends to constrain the ear. Now the second one distorts the sight. It corrupts the eye. The serpent blazingly contradicts God's word here. And instead of death, the serpent promises life for those who would take of that forbidden fruit. His reason here is seeing the Adam and Eve, can't you see? Can't you see? And that's exactly it, isn't it? He's promising them that when they eat of this fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they will have sight. They'll have vision. They will be able to know good and evil. They will judge just as God is able to judge and discern what is good and what is evil. And what's bad about that? Isn't that a good thing? See, the eye is the instrument of judgment or of discernment. So Jesus said your eye is the lamp of your body. So when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, your whole body is full of darkness. If we're wise, able to judge, to discern or right, we will be healthy and flourish if our eye, if our instrument of judgment is bad, our whole body will be sick. Sight is central here. So when the woman saw, that's what happens now. When the woman saw the fruit, if you've been bullied, it's, you just know this is the experience. And it's, it's crazy. Bullies throughout the ages of the world have sought to awaken uh, mature appetites in the young, haven't they? Uh, they, they, the bullies seek to awaken inappropriate appetites in the innocent. And you wonder why. It's just it's sheer wickedness, isn't it? See, the fruit was indeed good, and, and Eve's eyes can, can see that aright. This is good fruit, but she fails then. Her eyes fail to discern wisely, 
it's not for me yet. It is good, but it's not for me. It's not for us yet. She is young and has yet to grow wise, and so she is tempted by this serpent. But don't fear, people of God, because Adam is there, right? He's right there. That's what it says. He's, don't be afraid of this serpent because Adam is right there. And his job as priest is to what? Is to nurture and is to guard. So take heart. God's priest is in the sanctuary with his bride who's being tempted. But we know the story. We know the story. He too is taken by the deception. His eyes fail to discern wisely. Adam has failed as a priest in God's garden sanctuary. His bride grasps after the fruit and she eats it and then she gives it. Isn't this the priestly act here? Isn't this what we see priests doing throughout scripture, throughout redemptive history? They take hold of God's good gifts and they give thanks for them and then they, they break it and then they, they give. You see, what's happened is Adam has abdicated his responsibility, his authority as king and priest in his garden, God's garden sanctuary. Adam's failure as a priest leaves there no guard, no nurturer. The garden and the bride are corrupted as they eat, as they take in corruption. You are what you eat, and man is created hungry. And God has given us all foods that are good for us to eat, and yet we seek to feast upon that which is Forbidden, verse 7, then the eyes of both were open. See, sight once again. Eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Sight is central again. See, they see, they, they behold, and then they name nakedness. They discern, they judge, they are naked. Something is lacking, something is missing, something is changed. Clothing is good. Clothing makes man more glorious. Think of a priestly garment. The breastplate of precious metal and precious gems gives more glory to the man as he's created and clothed. Think also of the king or queen with their crown and regal gowns. Clothing is given to make man more glorious. God is the one, though, who clothes with wisdom as with garments. But instead, here the problem in this chapter 3 of Genesis is that man does not wait. Man, rather, grasps after that which God has withheld for a time. James 1 encapsulates this whole story well as it plays out in each of our lives every single day. James says every person or each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. You can be like God. Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And this is our story. This is the motion of sin. It's a grasping after something. Each fall in sin is a, a failure as a priest king, as a helper queen. And it's our story of being. It's not just doing the fall into sin corrupted every fiber, every reflection of God in man has become now distorted. See, Jesus didn't come just to clean up our act. He came to renew. He came to transform. He came to walk with us through death to resurrection life. And we see in this next section that he will hold us accountable. 
that all of us will be accountable for our actions, our sins, our thoughts, our words. All will be held accountable, not by fact checkers or media outlets, but by the all-seeing God who judges right. Verse 8 and following. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Fear, unholy fear, enters the garden for the first time. Shamed fear of a benevolent, good creator was God himself. They fear God. See, those fig leaf clothes, they're insufficient to cover their shame. They cannot cover or atone for their sin. So they expand a game of hide and seek to encompass the wider garden. Where are you? I thought we could hide from you, so we tried it. You found us. Is, that, is, is God really looking for that? Does God not know where Adam and Eve are? No. This where are you is God's call to confession, isn't it? It's the opportunity to, to un, un, unburden one's self with the wrong that has been committed. And that is, an, that is a grace. We know their story. They play hide and seek as fear grips them. The thing is that God doesn't hide from sin. Rather, he calls us forth in our sin. Why? In order to forgive, to receive us, to work and to keep his garden, his servants. It's a, it's a funny image, really, uh, of seeking to hide from God. And yet, we do it a lot. Each one of us, we sin against a spouse or family, friend, worker, co-worker, deep friend. How do we hide and seek in the midst of our failures and our sins? Verse 11, he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and then I ate. The fruit is to make one wise, but our parents are foolish here. It's an immature response that we are all well-versed in. When called to account, we tend to blame others rather than accept responsibility ourselves. Let's first blame the serpent. I mean, that's the tempter, right? Well, that's fair, but that's not the whole of the story, is it? And this is a great one then. Let's blame our spouse. It's the woman. She did it. And that's not quite far enough, right? I'm not worried about my part in this failure, but it's the woman's fault. And let's take this a little bit further. The woman that you put here, Remember? I was fine with a dog, but no, you put a woman. I mean, what are we guarding against? What are we trying to hide? What are we walling off to guard in our hearts? When God comes and says, where are you? Did you eat? Verse 14, God will not leave his sanctuary and his servants alone. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And we're like, yes. God is waging war on his terms. It's the war of this woman and the serpent. It's a microcosm of God's war against evil and wickedness. And God will overcome. As you read your scriptures and think through the stories of the Bible, have this verse in mind where he says that, that the, the, the offspring of the woman will, will crush the head of the serpent, though the head of the serpent will bruise the heel of that offspring. If the serpent attacks the head, who is Adam here, will not his own head be crushed? It's the archetypal story of redemption here, pointing always to Jesus and his sacrifice and resurrection. He is the offspring of Eve, which we find in its fulfillment, who does indeed crush the head of the serpent. Verse 16, the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you will return. God will wage war on his terms. Having failed as king and queen in their infant dominion, governing their house now will become impossibly difficult. Having failed as priest and helper to tend and to guard, they fail these responsibilities in the sanctuary. Now all of the land outside of the sanctuary itself will work against them. There is now a war between creation and man, between man and wife, between humanity and God. Man is made from dust and being cursed. Now all dust is cursed. The earth is now bringing forth thorns and thistles throughout all the earth. Although the redemption promised here in, in 3.15, it spreads as far as the curse is found. See, this story is much, <clears throat> it's much larger than a simple act of, of wrongdoing, of lawlessness or merit for good or for ill. In this sin, in this fall, the nature of being has been corrupted. The being of nature has become sickened. The grasping after fruit was an unlawful act, but the corruption is in failed priesthood and diseased kingship, queenship. The reason that God judges not only the serpent here, but, but the man and the woman here, is because their act is an act of rebellion, and it corrupts their very nature. At the foundation of what they're seeking to do, they're seeking to reorder God's good here. He, they're placing their authority over his authority. They're heeding the serpent's words over God's word, and that must be corrected. They must learn, again, humility and holiness. And we see it must be condemned and corrected again here in verse 22. The Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
more, and then comes further judgment there. But that's the image of sin, isn't it? In the corruption of their nature, they will continue to grasp after things which God has not yet granted them. Now, we've used this image before, but we'll say it again because it's right here. Man was created a hungry being with palm up, extended arm to reach and to receive that which God gives in his timing, in his wisdom, in his justice. And man receives with gratitude. But the image of the fall here is a palm extended, palm down, hand extended palm down. It's a hungry creature grasping after anything to fulfill the appetites in his own doing. The image of sin is a grasping after. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. To become like God is what it means to mature. It's not a bad thing that they are becoming like God. It's the way in which they seek to become like Him. God has given them His word and His way to mature and to grow in. To become like God is not in the sense of becoming God, but like Him. To bear His image from one degree of glory to the next. And the serpent spoke this truth. If you eat of it, you'll become like Him. He's right, isn't He? But He slanted it, putting God in an unkind light, framing God as a withholder of good. Man's fall into sin leads to verse 23 and following. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The judgment fits the crime in order to priest well in the garden sanctuary, we must learn to priest well in the land. If you're faithful with a little, God will give you much. It's not in, it's, it's not in, uh, it's to, to king and queen with godly dominion, we must mature in our regal authority outside the king's gate. As Adam, or as Israel's sanctuary will tell us, their story will tell us countless times that God's house is holy. His sanctuary is sacred space. But this side of Eden, we must mature in holiness as we work and as we keep the rest of God's cosmic temple, his holy dominion. See, the fall is a story of maturity and not only of merit. It's about our being, our nature. Scripture evidences for us that God would have indeed granted access to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in his time. The fruit of that tree is to make one wise, it says in chapter 2 and chapter 3. See, wisdom is always the aim of maturity. So later, there's a new king, Adam, who arises, the, the son of the great king, David. He goes by the name of Solomon. If you're familiar with the story, he is granted a gift of his own choosing. And he asks God for wisdom. Or as the text describes it, he asks God for knowledge of good and evil. And God grants him the fruit. It's a gift to be given to man as they mature. We have to remember that Adam and Eve, though they were created as adults, they're infants, they're young. They need to grow. They need to mature. 
in holiness, in righteousness, in obedience. Adam and Eve were not mature. They lacked capacity to digest the fruit of that tree. God's command was not to withhold this good forever. Our parents must learn and practice wholehearted dependence upon God, mature in his holy dominion. And so now we all live east of Eden. And within the heart of each one of us, there's an echo of the eternal call of the garden sanctuary to dwell with God in the cool of the day. At base, every call for justice throughout the world, every shout to take care of our earth, every desire to right every wrong is in some sense an echo of the call of this sanctuary garden. And from it, these rivers from Eden, with its promise of life and wisdom, will flow forth in the heart of man through all eternity. But east of Eden, we recognize there is a lack of shalom, that things are not the way they ought to be. But this is the case for all of humanity now. We all dwell east of Eden, which means that as followers of Jesus we can affirm certain things. We can walk alongside folks who differ greatly from us without feeling threatened, without needing to threaten others. For all resonate with the despising, cursed life east of Eden. All long in some form or some version of garden shalom. And so you'll hear throughout our society and even the world, there's a many calls to care for our environment, for our created good. And there's alarmists on all sides of those conversations, but can we not at the base level, no matter what disagreements, can we not at the base level agree that the earth is good? It's created by a good God and that we have the responsibility and authority to care for it, to tend it, to nurture it? Now, we might disagree with methodologies which seek to address fractured relationships and in race relations, but the desire to be recognized with dignity, to be treated as fellow human beings. Can we not work with that as a basis? There's confusions about identity, whether it's somebody wondering about their gender. Maybe it's somebody who seeks to find their identity solely in their vocation. Our root of personhood and what we do Dialogue and dignity, see the image of God in each of us. It is people that we walk with, not ideas only. It is people made in the image of God, created good, reflecting the image of their creator, of our creator, made to mature in God's word and way. Yet, for all of us, we remain east of Eden, longing for home. But Christian, we don't despair, do we? Because we love and serve the second Adam, who is the great high priest. He is the one who commands cherubim with flaming swords. He is the one who has torn asunder the temple curtain guarding access to the sanctuary garden, who has opened the gate wide that people might enter in. He is God's garden sanctuary, in whom is all God's delight. To enter Eden we go west. We traverse the corrupt paths of our hearts to lay our stubborn wills at the feet of King Jesus, who judges, who sees all. We are naked before his fire eyes, and we are in our sin ashamed. But praise be to God, the guarded gates and the flaming swords are not the last word of 
our story. And it is not the last story of our world either because God is reconciling all things to himself through Jesus Christ. God is making all things new through his resurrected son, who is Jesus Christ. And that work is going on right now. This story is told and retold throughout Scripture, throughout history, through our lives, but a better a story unfolds in Jesus Christ. One day, he will come as the bridegroom to wed his bride, the church, in the garden sanctuary. His new heavens and his new earth will be formed anew in the world, in the word of his power, and he will be our temple. He will be our priest. He will be our king. And in the center of that new Jerusalem will be the river of living water that will flow to the four corners of the earth. From God's garden sanctuary will life flow out to the ends of the world. And there will be in that middle, in the center there, there will be that tree, that tree of life whose fruit is for the healing of the nations. And all peoples, from, all, from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, peoples will bring all their best and bow before him, their king, that they might join together in the eternal victory feast with Jesus to be enjoyed for all eternity. See, life east of Eden is indeed a cursed life. But in Christ, the curse is cured. Access to God is granted, and life to the full is enjoyed, so that we serve gladly as King Adam's as Queen Eve's, now and forevermore. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word now, and I pray that as it's been preached and delivered, would you uh, work in us that which you would have for us, that our lives might be conformed to Jesus Christ. We're grateful that you have called us and that you feed us. Draw near to us now and strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.